do I know what joy is in response to the gospel? So this afternoon, it's been my prayer leading up that each one of us will either discover or rediscover joy in response to God's grace. And I think the passage helps us do that because firstly, we see how Mary receives grace with humility, God's grace with humility. And then we see how Mary responds to God's grace with joy. And together we see ultimately it is only when we receive God's grace with humility, like Mary, that we're then able to respond to God's grace with joy. So if you'll turn back to the passage, the slip was there, the connect card will be very helpful for following along. Uh, We'll get stuck in. Picking up from verses 26 and 27, we're told that at the sixth month mark of the pregnancy of Elizabeth, Mary's cousin, an angel of the Lord has come to her in Galilee, seeking out the Virgin Mary, married to Joseph, who's a descendant of King David. And from verse 28, Luke recounts to us the meeting between the angel and Mary. Uh, You might have seen up there that the angel tells Mary she's going to have a kid and Mary's response is, okay. Um, I think the passage tells it a bit differently. (laughs) Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. That's what the angel says. And then the angel goes on to tell Mary from verses 29 to 37 that she, a virgin, will conceive the heir to the throne of David. And then to reinforce this, uh, the angel of the Lord points back to her cousin Elizabeth, who is pregnant, um, and even though she is well past bearing children, she's about to give birth to a son. For this too was a promise, uh, which the angel concludes with, the word of God will never fail. Now, I don't know about you, but okay, I think, understated what this conversation was like. In the space of moments, Mary is told by a messenger from God that she's going to give birth to a son, even though she's a virgin, and this son will be the son of God and king, even though she's just some poor woman from Galilee. This is so crazy, I had to ask myself, is this even true? Well, if you're familiar with Luke, or if you're not familiar, at the start of Luke chapter 1, Luke himself tells us why he's written and what he's written about. In fact, he says he's written and investigated the matters of the life of Jesus carefully. He's even spoken to the eyewitnesses. And his evidence and research means that Luke wants his account to be read as history and not as some fairy tale. Not only this, but Luke was also a doctor. And so he'd be quite familiar, I I would dare say it, about the process of giving birth and pregnancy. And so when we take these two matters together, we should have no doubt as to the authority and clarity of Scripture and the story of the virgin birth. No doubt at all about its truth. But even though these events are real and they are in history, some of you may be a little bit sceptical of the suggestion of a virgin being pregnant. Of course, putting aside the fact that she met an angel as well. And so, of course, you know, the angel of the Lord kind of gets this and that's why he points back to uh, Elizabeth, Mary's cousin. 
Like I said, she's well past her prime in many respects, and yet she was pregnant. Here is proof that God can do what he says he can do. The angel was saying that it's not inconceivable, if you pardon the pun, or impossible that Mary is going to have a child. That was actually my wife's joke, um, not mine. So Mary, having been given this message about what will happen to her, how does she respond in the passage? Well, we're told in verse 38, she says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Life-changing event. I'm a virgin going to have a baby who happens to be the son of God. And she responds with utter humility. There's no pride. There's nothing stubborn. There's no objection from her about what the angel has said. No, it's a humble commitment to serve the Lord. And I think her response of humility is tied up in verses 28 and 30, where we're told that she receives favour. In the Greek, uh, the word favour actually means an act of divine grace being bestowed on God's people. But it's not something that is used. It's a gift that God gives to the undeserving, something that they don't deserve or merit. And so if we understand that this is what favour means, it actually changes how we see the passage. You see, if we reread it again, it reads that the angel of God is actually saying to Mary that she is the recipient of God's grace. She is the recipient of God's predetermined blessing, of his own initiated blessing. And what we actually read in the passage is very little about Mary and a lot about what God is intending to do. You see, it's God who is promising to come to the world in the form of a baby, not in the form of a pillar of fire, not in the form of a cloud on a mountain or on the temple as he did in the past, but in the form of a person. And you see, it's God who is promising that this child will be his son and will sit on the throne of King David. And it's God who is promising to at last fulfill the Old Testament promises about the coming of his kingdom that were really writ large in places like Isaiah and 2 Samuel 7. And you see, it is God who's taking the first step of restoring the relationship between himself and mankind. It's God's gracious act in sending a saviour and no one else's. And in light of the reality of what God was going to do, Mary responds with humility, for she knows that she is the recipient of God's undeserved grace. See, I think Mary knows who she is before God. She certainly knows who society thinks she is before God, poor, unworthy, not worthy of anything. And yet God still comes to her despite how lowly and undeserving she is. And you know what, friends? Nothing's changed for us now. It still remains the same. None of us receive God's grace if we first do not understand who we are before him. You see, like Mary, we don't receive 
God's blessing of grace because of who we are. After all, spiritually speaking, we too are poor. We are lowly and we're undeserving of his grace. And like Mary, we don't receive God's blessing because of what we've done. Look at Mary again. There's nothing that she did that was deserving of it, we would say, or that she'd earn God's grace in any way. Somewhat surprisingly, it's only with this spirit of humility that we can come to receive God's grace. And the more we understand deeply God's grace, actually, the more we allow it to transform our lives, the more humble we become. And so by receiving God's sheer and abundant grace like this, it humbles us. It shifts our frame of reference from us to God. We understand everything in the framework of what God would have us do and what he has done. But you know what? We have even more reason to understand this than Mary because we can look to the cross. And this is what we see when we look to the cross. We see that God has sent his son to die to reconcile our relationship to him. We see that God initiated the restoration of a relationship that was broken. Broken by sin. And like Mary, we did nothing to deserve this gift. We did not even earn this gift. This gift has nothing to do with who you or I are. It's all about the amazing love of God for his creation. That even though we did not want a relationship with him, he still wanted one with us. And so when we look at the cross, we can only see what God has done for us not what we have done or deserved. And we have to be, we must be, we cannot be anything else but humbled. And so as Mary received God's grace with humility, we also see in this passage that she, and indeed Elizabeth's response to God's grace was joy. If you go back to the passage, from verse 30 onwards, we learn that Mary, having met with the angel, visits Elizabeth. And during this visit, something really curious happens. Elizabeth finds it to be an unexpected and undeserved honour, an act of God's grace in her life that she would meet the mother of her Lord, the mother of the Saviour of God's people. And you see it in the passage. She's so overjoyed, she's exclaiming. She's not just very excited. She's really excited because she has been blessed with seeing God's promise fulfilled. And even John is excited in the womb. In utero, he's flipping around with excitement. You see, both of them are rejoicing that God has graciously interacted with them in a way that was unexpected. After encountering God's grace, they are filled with thankfulness and joy. And Luke emphasises this when we read Mary's song from verse 46 to 50. In response to receiving God's grace, Mary's first words in her song are to praise God. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, says Mary in verses 46 and 47. And why does she say that? 
Well, she explains it the next verse because God has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. That is, the maker of heaven and earth has not simply disregarded Mary because she was poor and lowly. And Mary goes on to say what this blessing will entail. God will lift up the humble and humble the proud. He'll satisfy the hungry and the poor, but he will reject the rich. God will establish his kingdom through his son, but it will be an upside down kingdom. Do you notice the funny thing about Mary's response to God's grace? She responds with a song. And more importantly, she she responds in a way that says exceptionally little about herself and praises God for who he is. You see, it's quite clear that in response to receiving God's grace, Mary's not filled with pride about who she is, but is full of praise and thankfulness for who and to who God is, for his love, for his mercy, for his kindness for his amazing grace to her. And the same should be true for us. I mean, after all, that's how we should be when we sing the song Amazing Grace. Most of you will know it, I imagine. But in the first stanza, John Newton says, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Just as it was for Mary, so it was for John Newton, so it is for us. In receiving God's grace, Newton knows that the only way for that to have happened was because he knows in his heart that he was fundamentally wretched before God. Do you really believe that you are wretched before God? Most of us think we're pretty good. Certainly not a sinful, wretched person at all. But Newton, like Mary, doesn't stop there. Having acknowledged that he's a sinner before God, Newton goes on in his song, doesn't he? "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." Like Mary in verse 29 of this passage, when God approaches her, she's afraid because she feels, I think, and indeed is exposed to the glorious presence of God. And in his grace, She sees that God is drawing close to her. And she can see in that moment clearly who she is in comparison to who God is, holy and glorious. And again, just as it was for Mary, just as it was for Newton, it is the same for us. In light of God's grace to us, we all remember not only that we are wretched sinners, But our whole lives are laid bare before him. And in comparison to his holiness, to his glory, we are nothing. If we are like Mary or we are like Newton, we should be able to see in our own lives that God has drawn near to each one of us in his grace. And he's revealed to you and I our sinful wretchedness and that we need his grace. But we also should respond to God's grace with joy. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. When God draws near to us, we are humbled and filled with God-inspired fear. But then we actually remember and discover that it's Christ who is drawing near to us to bless us, 
to show us undeserved favour. And this is a source of amazing joy, a source that leads us to be able to sing. No matter whether we've been here 10,000 years or 10 years, to sing God's praise. And I think this is why Peter, in 1 Peter verses 1, 8 and 9, says, Through Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him, you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so our response to God's grace, his undeserved and unexpected grace, should be a response in which we are filled with joy and thanks to God. The God who keeps his promises, the God who saves, the God who loves us, the God who shows us his grace. But if everything that I've said is on the mark, which I warrant that it is, And if God says who he is, and we know what our response should be, then I had to ask myself as I was reading this passage, and I encourage you to ask the same question. Why am I not like Mary? If I know God's grace, if I understand who God is and what he has done for me, then why am I not like her? Why is my life not filled with joy? And if I'm honest with you, which I will be, as I pondered this passage, as I wrestled with it and as I searched my heart, I couldn't find much joy. To be blunt, I couldn't recall much at all. And so I struggled with how the heck I'm going to be standing up here talking to you, preaching to you, when I possibly don't even know what joy looks like. Well, one thing in God's kindness that he did reveal to me are some reasons why I think, indeed, we may not experience joy. And there are two reasons that came to my mind, two things that stood out to me. If one of the keys to joy is humbly receiving God's grace, then it stands to reason that one of the main obstacles to joy is our pride. You see, we're either religiously proud or rebelliously proud. And in reality, we're a bit of both. Let me tell you what I mean. When I'm talking about being religiously proud, I'm talking about those of us who suffer from PJD. If you haven't heard this before, it's called performance justification disorder. Uh, For some of you, it might even look like pretending to be Jesus disorder. You see, we view everything through the lens of having to prove ourselves. I prove myself through one thing, but then there's another thing. Do you know what? Those of us who are lawyers here will kind of get this. One case is finished. It's a great win. The file's done. Oh, there's another one. Next case is finished. And you just go through in a circle. It's a bit like doing a sermon. One sermon done. Went okay. On to the next one and away you go. Each task either is another opportunity to prove myself. To prove myself to God, to prove myself to others. I think even just to prove myself to me. And when you're stuck in this cycle, friends, it makes you tired and resentful. Now, if that's you, then you, like me, need to stop and humble yourself again. 
knowing that God does not care about what you or I can do. He's more concerned about whether we know what he has done for us and that we trust in his son's death on the cross. Don't try to prove yourself because you're based on your own works, but rely upon the work of Christ. Now, I did say we're religiously proud, and then I did also say we're most likely rebelliously proud as well. You see, when I'm tired, and I'm bitter, and I'm resentful, I'm all down on the PJD, I need some pleasure, some satisfaction, some joy, something that I can, I can find a bit of contentment. But rather than humbly drawing near to God, which is what I should do, I am instead rebelliously proud. Yes, I'm talking about those of us who would do anything else than draw near to God. I think most of you know what I mean. Those moments when you're craving real joy and instead of coming before God, spending time with Him in prayer, reading His Word, you instead do any one of the following. Surf the web, watch sport, exercise, work, food, eat it, cook it, look at it. Um, Or, I've heard this one going around a lot, watch Netflix. Now let me say that these things are not bad. They're actually good. But too easily, in the pride of our hearts, we make those things into something more. We find more joy in these things than we do in knowing God. But the reality is these things, friends, they only offer fleeting happiness. They don't even offer joy. It's here one moment and gone the next. It's like a series of MasterChef. It's finished and I'm disappointed. It's like after dinner and I want something else to eat and there's nothing left. I'm disappointed. Don't let that preclude me from inviting you over for dinner. But in the words of C.S. Lewis, and I think this is really helpful, he wrote in The Weight of Glory the following, We're like half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. And we're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what it is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea. We're far too easily pleased. We go on making mud pies because we cannot imagine what it is like to be at the holiday by the sea because we're far too easily pleased. The reality is, friends, I think each one of us knows that we're a bit religiously proud and we're a bit rebelliously proud. And these things prevent us from experiencing the joy of the gospel. And if this is you because it certainly is me, I want to encourage you to come before the Lord again. Come back to him and say sorry. Sorry for deliberately mistaking who he is, for willfully rejecting him and going somewhere else for pleasure, for ignoring what he's blessed you with and turning his grace into a means of pleasing him through your own works or turning good things into ultimate things in his place. For when we receive God's grace with humility, then we're able to respond to God's grace with joy. 
Today we've seen that Mary was someone who knew God's grace and the joy that comes from knowing God's grace. In humility she received it and in joy she responded to it. To conclude, I want to paraphrase John Piper. He's a US pastor from the States. The only people whose soul can truly magnify the Lord are people like Mary. People who acknowledge their lowly state before God and are overwhelmed by the grace of God. When we receive God's grace with humility like Mary, then we're able to respond to God's grace with joy. Friends, won't you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we now turn to you and give you thanks and praise that you came into the world and you rescued us from our sin, from our slavery. Help us to receive your grace with humility and to continue to receive it with humility and be so taken with it that our response is and can only be one of joy and thankfulness. Lord, we ask you to fill us with all the joy and peace as we trust in you so that we might overflow with joy by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.